Welcome to the Writer's Jihad. In Islam, jihad means the struggle for peace, the greatest of which is within ourselves. For most writers, we imagine that once we make it, we'll be at peace. But that's not true. The top professionals find peace as elusive as anyone else. The Writer's Jihad is a podcast series of interviews with writers at different points in their careers talking about the struggle for peace in their industry. Every award-winning professional began as an unpublished amateur. We all start at the same place. We all face the same struggles. And we shouldn't hide those struggles behind the mystique of the craft, nor the glamour of success. If we can help each other, we should. So today, I'm with Gavin Verhey uh, from, uh, and he works at Wizards of the Coast. Uh, Gavin, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Hey, yeah, totally. My name is Gavin Verhey. I work at Wizards of the Coast, as, you know, he just very well said himself. Um, but I am a game designer on Magic the Gathering, so I help make the card game and the mechanics and the abilities, but I, I don't draw the pictures. Everyone always asks, do you draw the artwork? And I'm like, no, 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 that's not what I do. But I've been come up with all the various things that go into the game. Do people really ask you if you draw the artwork? All the time. I say, I say, I design magic cards, and then they start asking for for uh, painting tips, and I'm like, not not the right person for that. Sorry. I have illustrated two magic cards, but they were from Mystery Booster, which is a set that's about like you know drawing. It had like hand drawn art by employees, and mine were like literally line drawings. So not not quite that fancy. <laughs> I never thought that'd be a question you get asked. Um, uh, as I I, I often talk about magic because I'm, I'm a big gamer i've been playing magic since 94 or something so magic's very close to my heart and you're you're a particularly lovely person um so we've met up a couple of times we met in manhattan in a rather bizarre situation uh, it was um but so we've we've had a bit of a um, online sort of um relationship we've been chatting back and forth and it, you you revealed to me i didn't realize this but you uh, initially, you you were studying writing. You were studying creative writing, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I went to school with a for English, focusing on creative writing, and that's been something that I've studied a lot. And you know, I could tell the whole story, but when I was a little kid, it's what I always wanted to do. So um, it's near and dear to my heart. Yeah. So when so you were how old when you started this sort of desire to start writing? <clears throat> yeah. So you know, I have always been like a voracious reader. Growing up, I, I totally was. And I started reading books, uh, you know, like chapter books or whatever when I was two and a half years old or, or two, something like, like that, like way, way, way early. My mom always likes telling that story. Um, but then uh, when I was three, I knew I started wanting to start writing. So before I could really write anything myself, I would dictate stories to my mom and she would write them down. And actually one of my prized possessions is there's like a book I wrote when I was three that my mom like then got, you know, got bound and typed up and whatever that she gave to me many years I later. I love that. Uh, what was what was, yeah. the, what was the story about? What was it? What was the story? What was the book? Uh, it's about about this um, about this guy who um, needed pockets. And I don't think I had like a strong idea at the time of like how pockets worked. I thought they were just like things that you bought and put onto clothes. So I was all this whole story about uh, how he was trying to go pocket shopping anyway, because um, he needed pockets for his clothes. I don't know why I thought that was an important thing when I was three, but apparently I did. That's fantastic. so, but you know. <laughs> For, for for years, I would, you know, I start off that way, but then I just kept kept writing. And eventually, of course, I was typing up my own stories, and I, you know, just love spinning worlds. And, you know, I of course, like many people growing up in the 90s who were gigantic nerds, I did a bunch of fan fiction writing where I like, took my favorite properties and wrote about them. I did some of my own personal writing in my own worlds. Right. And a, a big piece for me is when I got into magic, I started playing magic when I was 10. And, um, when I really got into it, I started joining all these online groups. I, I was, a, you know, on forums and stuff all the time and writing and communicating and what was a huge part of those. And there were so many areas of these forums that were, you know, where you could write long form things. And I really kind of weirdly honed my craft is probably too strong of a statement, but I really like cut, cut my, cut my teeth and started to learn a lot by doing, you know, in-world writing with other people, reading their writing, and honestly just writing more, even though the vast majority of what I was putting on forums was, um, you know, not creative writing, just getting into those reps at a young age of, of how to talk and, um, you know, tell stories about reality, I, I think did a lot for spinning me um, in the right direction. 
of what to do. Additionally, you know, I, I knew I wanted to be a magic designer from a young age when I was like 11 or so. And so on these forums that I was on, they had areas where you could create your own magic cards, which of course ended up being very important to the job I have now of kind of honing my, my, my craft. And a lot of what makes a good magic card is telling a story in a single card. And, you know, there's flavor text on cards, which is like a very tiny bit at the bottom that tells a little bit about the world. There's, um, that doesn't have any game relevance. There's the names of the cards, which have, have storytelling relevance. And I always think of an individual magic card. A good magic card is like a very tightly told story, right? Every card is a single individual story with the art and the names and the flavor text. And if you can nail that, if you can nail this story and, you know, whatever, the 10 words you get to do so, um, I, I think that's amazing, uh, telling a story across that canvas. And I think working on that helped um, grow my creative writing skills as well. Yeah, I mean, it's not something I want to get into right now, but I, because of my background as well, I had that same appeal with magic, which was the story element of magic and how you can... There's, there's a very interesting thing about how magic works because of the sort of atemporality of the of the way story is delivered. Like you don't you see it out of sequence, and it's a game, so you want people to be immersed in the world as opposed to just present a full world. There's a lot of very interesting elements, so I can I I completely understand how that sort of nature of the creative desire to write found a very good home in magic. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so. With magic, how how does that? Because you 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 were so you got um you wanted to did you want to always just like was there a point where it was like I want to write and then okay now I want to write for magic I want to work on magic or was was it just like how did that how did those two things combine for you was it just a very natural combination of things right I mean for so long you know as a kid I it's only different. different things I wanted to be, right? I wanted to be a professional baseball player for a while. I wanted to be a writer. Um, but once I found magic, once I determined that that was really the thing I wanted to do, like at 11, I really did set my mind to coming and working at Wizards someday on the game. At that point, I kind of, that's, that's where I always wanted my destiny to need to lie. And so my creative writing at that point was less about, hey, how am I going to write a novel someday? but more about how can I hone what I do? Well, yes, writing a novel would be fun and, and all that, but but how can I hone what I do in the creative sense to be good at what magic needs me to be good at? So telling stories in a really short space, um, uh, building worlds is, of course, a huge thing for magic, so how can I contribute to a world-building team, um, You know, which is something I do now actively. Um, and I think it's no coincidence that my focus in creative writing was on poetry, which is a good analog, I think, to a magic card of how do you tell a story <clears throat> in a very tiny amount of space, or not even necessarily a tiny space, but in a very, like, um, I guess, for lack of a better term, poetic fashion. Yeah, um, no, I get that, because you, and have, that, you have a very small real estate on a magic card for story, and so you've got a, the flavor text, I mean, often it was poetry flavor text on the cards. Yes, in fact, there's been poems we've written for yeah. magic cards, right? Yeah, like yeah. you look at the love song of night and day the uh, from Mirage Block, um, or the Theriad, exactly from Theros, which um, are poems that we then you know wrote longer and broke them across several cards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so now, because magic, the development of magic is multiple teams, right? You've got um, the game design team that's in three pieces. You've got, correct me if I'm wrong. You've got Vision. They hand it over to set design, and then they hand it over to play design. In fact, there's exploratory before vision. So there's four sort of design stages for just the game design. And then there's the creative side of the game, which is the storytelling, the world building, and all those elements. And then if I'm right, there's a marketing, there's a brand team that's about how to take those elements and sell them. Am I right? Is that kind of correct? Yeah. I mean, those are, those are definitely some of the, the teams for sure. Um, but there's there's many other teams. For example, we've got a we've got a whole digital wing as well. You know that works on coding it into the, our digital versions of the game, and and many 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 other teams. You know our, our web teams and and so on. And um, now our our design teams. It's not like we have a dedicated vision design team and a dedicated set design team. Those people can change from set to set. Um, but that process that you, that you described, kind of the way it works from like early exploratory design all the way into the you know trenches of kind of play testing and play design is how the how the system normally tracks yeah and so you so where where do you fit into all of that so because if you're um say someone on play design up towards the end of the process i'm guessing has very little say in the creative 
aspects of the world building and the cards. There's a whole team that just does flavor text and card names and so on. So whereabouts do you fit into that? And how does how does that play out for your creative, the creative writing that you did? Like, are you actively involved in certain teams or is it just that, you know, you're in part of the very early stages of the designing of, of things. And so that's, you sort of map out the, the sort of the, the canvas as it were. I think it's very interesting in that every stage of the process has a place where you get to be creative and hooked into the creative writing aspect of it, but it all, happens in very different ways. For example, very early on in the process, like let's say we're in that exploratory design phase that you mentioned. At that point, a lot of what we do is pure creative, right? We might say, hey, we're going to an Egyptian-inspired world. And for those out there who don't know, so Magic is, is this card game that's played um, in every set. We release sets multiple times a year. And every set takes place on a different world, more, more or less. And so we'll go to these worlds that we build out. It's kind of like we write an entire movie and create a whole world guide that we only use for a, a single set. And in and, fact, also, um, you get the story elements sometimes are specific mechanics. They're like uh, they did a set uh, which you, you had characters escaping from a Grecian underworld. And so cards actually have on them the word escape, and they would escape from the graveyard to the gameplay. So you, you you very much tie these things together. And so you're saying with exploratory design, that's that's the stuff of, of exploratory design, right? Yeah, uh, exactly. So in exploratory, we're really, you know, because let's say we're going to do a Victorian horror world or a Gothic horror world. Well, in, in exploratory design, the first things we're going to do are write on the whiteboard, like, let's come up with as many tropes as we can. Like, where you think Gothic horror, what do you see? And we you see vampires, werewolves, zombies, you know. What are some card names we might use at some point? Like, from under the floorboards, that, that's super great, right? Um, you know, what are just things that would happen? What are archetypes we want to see here? So in, in exploratory design, it's very, very creative focus. And then we make cards based off of that. And then kind of the further along the, the trench you go, the more things start to solidify around you, right? By the time you get into the set design process, the world's been built out and you've got this world guide, which is, they're amazing documents, by the way. They're, you know, a couple hundred pages of art and story about the world that we assemble um, that then, you know, everyone gets to go off of. So at that point, it's less, hey, we're coming up with the creative tropes now and more, there's a guide of kind of a lot of the creative tropes. Let's look to that and let's look at this world that's been, been built already for us to figure out characters, moments to identify from. And then even further along in the process, by the time you get to play design, and play design is really um, crunching at the very end of the process to, uh, crunching is the wrong word, that's got like a negative connotation these days, but really, you know, honing, honing in at the end of the process to get the balance of everything right. The questions they all ask themselves are, okay, we need to change this card because it's too strong. What is something that creatively fits at this point that works for the card? Because a lot of people might not realize this, but the artwork for Magic cards and the creative for them, an individual card, is concepted way before the end of the process. Really, um, you know, it, by the time you're into the set design process, you're starting to commission artwork for cards. And once art comes back for a card, you know, you're kind of locked into using that piece. So if you've drawn something to fly, for example, well, the new card needs to fly if you have to change out what that card does. And so for play design, it might be like, okay, we see a smallish zombie, it's non-flying, it's depicted, you know, eating some brains or whatever. What whatever new card we come up with, if we throw out the old card, has to be a ground zombie that's eating brains. And then that can really inspire some creative directions from there. And as you said, like, you have to build, I mean, for people who don't play Magic and might not realize this, you guys, you have to build a whole world. I've, I've, I've mentioned this before in early, very early Story Toolkit episodes about how fantastic the world building is um the 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 joke of course is the fact that you guys sort of did pandora before avatar did right like that for for those don't know zendikar looks a lot like pandora and you got you wizards managed to pull that off by themselves in a much shorter time span your so the creative of your world building is fantastic uh and i study I, i i learned a lot from it but you have to build these whole world and how much uh, do, do you personally get to play in the creation of worlds? Like, if 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 you always were, because I know you're you're a sci-fi guy like me, and you liked all this world building as a kid, and you know you were writing and you got into the creative course, and that's something you're looking at. How much of this actually do you get to, you know, really create from your own own self, as it were? 
Right. So working on the game design team for me, you know, there's other people who are focused on creative, the world building day to day, right? I have plenty of days on my end, which are just come up with magic cards or even then make flavorful magic cards that fit into the world, but, but come up with those. But I think what we've found over time is that the best sets come from working closely with both the creative side and the game design side. And so often we'll embed creative team members in our design teams. So there's always a voice from them in the room and we can tell them cool ideas they can bring back to their team and iterate on. And for me, a lot of the time I set up touch bases um, or, 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 you know, working remotely, I just add creative members to chats so they can see what we're going on, what's going on, and they can uh, provide their own input because the best magic sets come when we get that fusion of both. And, you know, just to go back to our gothic horror world of Innistrad, I think that's a great example of how we worked so closely with the creative team to build it that everything feels right. Like there's a, a bunch of zombies in the set. What do they do? Well, in the gameplay, they come back from the graveyard and that's reflected in the world. We also wanted you to be able to um, get rid of them from the graveyard forever for extra effects. And so creative built into the world that there's these stitchers who will like stitch two zombies together to make an even bigger zombie. So we had a cool uh, design way of showcasing that in our cards. If you look at vampires, another great example, what do vampires want to do? Well, they suck your blood creatively. So our cards that, that depict vampires get stronger when they deal damage. And they were, you know, creative was able to really play with that and you know make them all about blood and opulence. And we were able to show that in the card mechanics. And so by embedding creative in what, what we were doing, it really levels us up. And I, it's just, it is amazing what happens when you get both those forces working together in tandem of creative world building plus game design. So for me personally, like I'm not penning down on a page, a story, for example, but I am talking with someone in a meeting about what their story is and giving suggestions on how we could craft it. And when there are large characters that are going to have shifts or story beats that are going to have shifts, we have a lot of a lot of input into that of like, okay, you're going to make so magic. Um, you know, kind of just to take a step back, is defined by its five colors: uh, white, blue, black, red, and green. And every color is is a creative lens. Um, and actually, a number of of story writers who work on in Hollywood and other places have taken Magic's color model and started adapting it for their own uses because it is such a great way to talk about characters and talk about story. And um, this is going to be the most like top-level definition because there's so much more nuance than this. But white in general is like about good and order and groups. Blue is about knowledge and kind of prizing you know, knowledge and patience. Black is about not, not just the forces of evil, but ambition and power. Red is about emotion and um, and quickness to act and um, impulsiveness, you know, kind of. And then green is about growth and um, and you know, being willing to to kind of kind of go for the, the long the long natural order worldview, I suppose. And so when we're working on stuff, if we have a character; they're going to be certain color or, or colors. And defining what those are and shifting them around will really change their character traits. For example, if we're going to make a brand new character and we're like, wow, we really need this to be a blue-white character, that's going to impact creative a lot more than if they're making a red-black character or, or, or mono-red character. So in that sense, you know, we have a pretty strong impact on what these characters are doing. That's true. And uh, what I find that funny that, you know, how people are adopting the five colors um, because... The, the writing groups you know they, they always have these things like some people they go well i use the zodiac or i use this i use that people these um i have so many books where people are going this is the animals was one that people loved you know this is the donkey character this is the dog character this is the rat character they they do that and the trick about it is to so that your cast is polarized right like everyone in your cast is going to react differently to the same events so that no one, you haven't got two characters that are just identical, right? So if you've got your white blue character and you've got your mono blue character, then immediately to that becomes interesting as a writing thing. Like, well, hold on, this guy's white blue and she's blue. So why, what makes those two characters different? And then, and you did that whole thing with um, the guild sets and the, the, the wedge sets and the, where you mix and match colors and, and so on. So I, I, I think that's I think that's great that you guys that's how how it works. Um, 
So well, well and, and just just to that really quick, you know, just to take one one quick aside. A lot of that tracks into power suites too, and that's also very creative. Yes. For example, let's say we have two characters who are both mono blue, right? They're both blue characters. Well, how are we going to make them different? Well, from a game design standpoint, we can give them different abilities, sure. But why? Why do they have different things? And what will happen there is we'll kind of define what the power suite for a character is. So maybe one blue character is all about learning and knowledge. And then you get a character like Jace Bellerin in our game who is all about like studying and mind magic and reading minds and learning. And you know, we have another character like Tezzeret who is all about artifacts and building and uh, kind of using knowledge to construct things. And even though they're both using knowledge and that pursuit of knowledge in a, in a very um, in a very deep way, the cards show up incredibly differently, right? One being artifact-focused and one being just, you know, kind of card-draw knowledge-focused. And so by carving out those both creative and mechanical spaces, it lets us tell pretty cool and dynamic stories. Exactly. And um, so the, these become uh, tools that you can sort of rework. So that, that that's a... That's a good overview of where you are now in terms of this, because what I found interesting um, about when I heard that, you know, you have this creative writing background was I knew you as the guy who, when he was 10 years old, decided he wanted to work on magic. And I had no idea about the writing aspect. So I always knew magic with the job you have now is your dream job. And what a lot of people do when they go out to be a creative person, be it, you know, illustrator, musician, writer, it doesn't matter, when you go into the arts, that's the dream job, right? And if you don't do it, if you don't get there, then people feel like they failed. People feel like, well, you wanted to do be an actor, but you're not, so you must have failed. And one of the things that people never talk about and never really open up about is this idea that being an artist is not necessarily the purpose of existence that you can actually have a dream job that isn't in an art in an artistic endeavor that you started out wanting to be there's there's nothing wrong with like and i think with you like you so love your it's you so love your job i mean we've been talking now for 20 minutes about your job right <laughs> about what you do right now and you're full of energy and love for it. And I think that's it's, it would be wonderful to hear about how, how this transition of just in your head, how you went from, I want to write novels and so on, to I want to do the job you're doing now. Like this, this whole thing of like, why, you, you, what was it at, before Magic? You wanted to work and you were writing your own, you wanted to write your own novels and stories and build your own worlds. Is that right? And you did a creative writing course. Well, I mean, what was that course like? What was what was non-magic Gavin? Whenever you looked at things like what was non-magic Gavin thinking he would make? Well, yeah, it's, it's so interesting, too, because even throughout college when I was studying creative writing, I mean, I was a professional magic player at that point. I was flying around and playing in tournaments. Yeah. I, I, I would go to um, I would go to class Monday through Thursday, and then on Friday, I'd fly somewhere in the world to play in an event. So magic and my college degree were so interlinked. Um, but when I was writing in college, you know, I, I'm always, I've always been a storyteller. Telling stories to me is so important, um, both both fic- fictional and non-fictional, because it, it gives us different ways and viewpoints on life and tells us about how different people live. And even within fictional stories, as you know, I'm sure everyone listening is, is quite aware, there's always like a kernel of truth there somewhere or, or an interesting viewpoint somewhere that does kind of extend to our real world. And so for me, so much of what I wanted to do was use storytelling as a medium to capture moments and as a medium to, medium to capture uh, pieces of life that were very hard to explain. So a lot of my poems when I was working on the poetry side of things were about, like, I'd find a moment I thought was really cool in my life or in a story or in something I was doing and try and convey that to somebody, like a moment of serendipity or a moment of, you know, where, like, all these pieces came together. And it's a very hard thing to say in one sentence. But when you get to kind of craft a story and, um, you know, or, you know, lines of poetry around it, you can finally convey that to what's going on. And honestly, uh, you know, this is going to sound like, wow, Gam's a real one-trick pony here. But another thing that I did quite often was I did a number of uh, poems that actually involved magic or tried to explain things about the game that I loved so much because 
there are so many elements of the game that unless you are playing, and especially when you're playing at a high level like I am, it's so tough to wrap your head around if, if you don't play. And describing that in a poem, you can get a little bit of that across. It really, you know, one of my teachers, like for my early assignments, second or third class in writing at college, was like, hey, write this. your assignment is to write a poem that talks about something that you love. And so, of course, I chose magic, and I wrote this poem kind of just talking about, it's called Play the Game, See the World. And it was this, like, long-form poem about just what my life was like and why I did all the things that I do and the highs and the lows. And everyone loved it in the classroom, even though they weren't magic players at all. I don't think there was a single other one in the entire class. And it really showed me, wow, how I could explain these elements of flying around the world, playing magic professionally, and the highs and the lows and the intensity without without having to literally just explain it in, in normal normal language. And after that, I opened up a lot more to, to doing that kind of thing and writing about that. Now, that was, not, now that was certainly not the only thing I did. I mean, I, that was, you know, maybe three or four things that I wrote out of whatever, 50, 100, whatever the number of stories and poems and what have you. But it was a really cool way of showing, oh, I can use this to communicate this other aspect of my life too. Um, but, you know, take, I, love, I love taking concepts of that are relatable and just blowing them out into trying to really boil them down to a great moment. Often in my writing, I would start with a moment I wanted to convey and then build out a story from there. Um, and then, you know, you end up with a lot of other really cool threads as you're doing it, but finding the moment that you're like, this is going to be the really cool crux of, of this whole story um, is, was kind of my style. Yeah, I, 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 that's, that's exactly how, how I think. The, that sense of, um, I completely relate to that because the, um, that it, and it makes so much sense uh, how that also keys into what you're doing now because there's a sense of immersion, right? You're trying to create something very immersive. You know, this, this is what it's like to be this person in this world, right? You're talking about these little moments of life Right. Is that right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And of course, with games, um, it's hard to construct a real sort of, it's a very different experience, um, a, 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 story, a story in a game than it is in a theater. Um, and so immersion is so important to that because it's so much about the world building. And um, that's fascinating. So I, I, I guess I, one thing I'll say to that really fast too, that, that I think is quite interesting it's going back to your question about world building and magic and what, what we do. One of the lines I always tell people is that the great thing about magic and the worlds that we build and the cards that we make is it allows you to tell your own stories. So you're playing a game of magic and, you know, you um, turn your opponent's ogre to stone. And it's, that's like the, this cool moment of like nothing in the story says this happens, but – hey, you're looking at the names of the cards and the art and the flavor text and it evokes something beyond what any story we've ever written does. You see the game play out and you're like, oh, wow, this is such a cool thing. Or, you know, all the way from the absurd, like, you know, there's a rat that's holding two swords and wearing boots that comes in and attacks you and you kind of visualize this hysterical scene in your head to something quite meaningful where, you know, a, a character, a, a beloved character will get some spell that kills them cast. And, uh, you know, you have this moment of like, oh, wow, I, I killed off this character in a different way than what happened in the storyline. That it's just very evocative and allowing you to tell your own stories is large. And in our most popular, one of our most popular formats, Commander, which is a very um, like social format to play Magic in, I think one of the things that's so, that's so appealing for people is it's not about winning. You know, a lot of people think about Magic as competitive. Commander is not a competitive format. And so people will build their decks because they can put whatever cards they want into their decks um, that are telling stories. Like, hey, I built a deck that is this entire storyline. It's got all the characters from that storyline. It's got all the story beats from that storyline immortalized on card form. Is the deck functional? I don't really care because I'm just going to be able to tell the story that I love as we're playing a game of Magic. And it's so cool that we make a game that allows you to do that too. Well, I mean, I have I have a deck uh, which is built around um, a mechanic in the game called Investigate and another one called Detain. And it basically, I, it's my Sherlock Holmes deck. And I, I just go around, like, killing someone's creature, and then a clue shows up, because that's what the card does. You kill something, and then you get a clue. And I go, someone's gone missing. Hold on a minute. I'll solve the case. And everyone's like, Bass, you're the one who cast it. 
hey, hey, and I get to do my Columbo impression, my Sherlock impression. <laughs> so every time I play it, it's like a murder mystery. Um, but but that's but there is another element of storytelling, which is that the game gives people experiences that they then tell other people about, right? Like actual experiences you know um not in in the game world itself but outside of that which again is part of that sort of like you you know you were talking about the poem about being a magic player and, and playing magic that re the real experience also becomes a story because things are happening in it that have meaning to people and so on and um so there's a lot of story inherent in the experience of playing magic i, I can i can really see that um, that you, you, now you also were talking about how, about communication and how the writing helps you communicate. And, and one of the things that I guess you, you do with, with writing is you take something that's very personal to you and then you make it somewhat universal or resonant, I guess, in a universal way. And then the audience repersonalizes it. So they see themselves in it, Right. And so, is is that like is this communication this 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 nature of like being able to express is it about sort of your self expression in that sense or is it about sort of resonating with people or immersing what exactly is this appeal of yours that you have that you, you seem to keep coming back to you know there's so many different pieces that it can appeal. I think that goes to the strength of the game, right? Like if you, if for example, if all you want to do is read our stories, you can just go and do that. Wait, right? No, no, really, no, not um, the game. Don't... I mean you, you personally. Oh, and me. Yeah, yeah, you. And, and me personally. Wow. Um, it's a great question. No, no one ever asks me about my my take on it. That's, um, what, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get your take on it. <laughs> I'm trying. Yeah. To... You know, it's, I, I've. It's amazing. It's a, it's a great question. Oh. Um. I guess what I would say is something someone told me once is that your life is measured by how many different lives you get to, to lead or, or understand. I like that. And when I, you know, we're only ever going to live one life. Like, you know, we'll, we'll do a lot of cool stuff. You and I have both done a lot of cool stuff. But we're only going to have our own perspective and our own life. And stories allow us to go into someone else's life for a little while, even if it's a fictional one, and see a different viewpoint from ours, a different character than ours, and expand our horizons. And, I mean, I love reading nonfiction for the reason of I get to see through real people's lenses for the things that actually happen in their lives and their stories. But fiction is the same way. And I think that a really, truly good story shows you the life of someone that you certainly don't have and that you would never experience and makes them feel real, like you're experiencing them yourself. And to me, I think that's what keeps me coming back to good writing and to storytelling over and over again is the fact that for a short amount of time, I am looking through the eyes of someone else. And um, that to me is, is so powerful. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. When you really get immersed in something, um, and, and sometimes it sneaks up on you, you don't realize it. Um, I mean, both, both you and I, you know, we like Doctor Who, right? And that shows completely off the wall, right? Um, and yet there are moments where you you can kind of, for a brief moment, like, yeah, that's what it would be like to be in the TARDIS. Yeah, they do a great job, I think, in the show of, despite the zaniness and the pure absurdity of a lot of it, also finding moments to ground it in emotion and feel and feelings. And, you know, I look at... Um, you know, some some very meaningful moments. I'll, I'll tell you, you know, one of my favorite episodes, favorite, favorite two episodes in the um, relaunch of the show that happened in 2005, in the in the 10th the, the Doctor season, I mean, you're going to know the episodes right away, but I'll explain it to the listener. There's this two-parter called uh, Silence of the Library, Forest of the Dead. And the Doctor is this time traveler. He, he goes through time and is, you know, always encountering people on his own terms. 
Yes. But he encounters this, this new, new character shows up called River Song. Yeah. And River is someone who's already met him multiple times, but he's never met her before, which is, and, you know, spo- spoilers for a, you know, whatever, 15-year-old episode of television, but the end of the, the two-parter is her dying, her sacrificing her life to save him. And it's this, you know, I talked earlier about how I start with, the, with these moments that have this emotional gravitas that, like, you see and you you just feel. You feel and you're like, wow, I, I this is an amazing moment. I, I get shivers down my spine hearing about it. And even now I'm kind of getting it too because it's this moment where she sacrifices herself to save him. And she knows it's the last time she will see him. But he knows he has many more times to see her. And there is so much to unpack there in this amazing, amazing moment and as the audience seeing that, you realize it all too. You're, you realize it at exactly the same time the character is realizing it. And for a moment, you and the doctor become one. And I think it's just a phenomenal, a phenomenal little thing that they they cracked for that show. And um, I always think about, think about that for a really fantastic piece of storytelling. In fact, that feeling that you get to be one with the doctor, that happens every time he meets River because you know and she doesn't. And so you get to right. be in on it on the doctor's side, right? It's like you you'll get to, you get to follow it from his point of view every time, and so it keeps it keeps. I mean, it, that was a particularly compelling um, storyline. Um, but and but this kind of this kind of um, this sense of like I get to walk in someone else's shoes. So, did you ever have any interest in nonfiction? Deeply, deeply so. In fact, um, I think I'll give you a bit of my background here. So when I, you know, I, I mentioned before I started playing Magic when I was young and started on these forums. Well, I also started writing articles really young. And these were ma- articles about magic, which were nonfiction articles. Now, you know, they're more or less informational. That's how they began, right? Oh, here's, here's a deck that I played in Magic. Let me tell you about it or whatever. But as my writing career grew and as I... Um, started writing more, and as I eventually got hired to write for websites, I, I wrote for a website called Star City Games, which is a, a very large magic website, one of, the, one of the largest, and, you know, many other places, I started dipping my toe into much more creative nonfiction writing. And there are a number of pieces I wrote for Star City Games, which are only ostensibly about magic, and they're a lot more about non like nonfiction or even nonlinear storytelling. I'm, I'm a sucker for a good nonlinear story. And they're talking about my life. And, um, you know, I got great writing advice from, I think it was a former editor of mine, which was, if I could take your article and replace someone else's, replace it with someone else's name, you failed. Ah, And in Magic, your article should be something that you read and and is you. And I really took that to heart and I started writing things that were, like I said, only tangentially magic-related in some cases. Like, I'm going to talk about a relationship I had, or I'm going to talk about, um, you know, just a bunch of different life experiences, moments that that are, are huge for me. And I, w- I would always find ways to relate them to magic in some sense, but bringing in that nonfiction storytelling not only honed my craft as a writer, but I think let me reflect on these powerful moments that could easily have been, you know, I could then translate into fictional stories someday. So nonfiction is totally my jam. And, and in fact... You know, on what with the prevalence of social media, when I do writing these days, almost all the writing I do is nonfiction, and I'll share it. I used to be able to share it in like Facebook notes, if uh, if you, know, you remember Facebook notes. But now, you know, I'll I'll write something and put it on Tumblr or what have you, because I do so much creative work in my day to day life that I'm pretty well satisfied there, right? I mean, I get to work on an amazing game that people around the world enjoy and tell stories there. And magic has a huge breadth of storytelling. So I feel no lack for that area of my life. But relaying nonfiction stories has actually become a lot more interesting to me over time and capturing those really cool moments from my life. Because I'm a very fortunate person who's got the chance to do, I'm very fortunate in the sense, I should say, they've got the chance to do a lot of very cool things and create a lot of these amazing moments for myself and they're very hard things to convey in a sentence sometimes. So writing a whole story to kind of explain explain what that is and why it's relevant is um, is huge. And so a lot of my nonfiction writing takes these kind of nonlinear paths where I'm like connecting a bunch of seemingly disparate parts of my life together to then give you one moment at the end where they all connect. And um, I love that kind of writing and 
I don't do it as much now as I would if I you know, didn't have a very busy job. But every now and then, I, I do still like sitting down and, and penning something short and, and delightful. Um, and maybe, you know, it, this is a good inspiration. Maybe go and do some more of that soon. So you you you, the, you have a Tumblr that you put these up on? Because I didn't realize you you, you publishing these. Yeah, it, it's... It's out of date, I would say. I've done a lot less of it recently. There was a time in my life where I was doing more. And then, frankly, as my as my job just became more and more busy and as I um, became more and more of a face for magic and, you know, um, spent a lot of my time focusing on the social media side of things, I started doing nonfiction writing less. Because I think that something interesting, what is writing? What, what is writing a story? And we think of writing a story as, okay, you write a book and you put it somewhere or you write a, a piece online that's even nonfiction and you put it up somewhere. But I think that in some way, in some fashion, social media has become a place to tell stories just as well. And it, it might only be a 240 characters on Twitter, but it's still a venue for storytelling. And, um, you know, it's where a lot of stories are being told. So for me, find, finding, uh, I think I'll translate a lot of my energy to that, writing these micro stories on Twitter, you know, as nonfiction elements, I think you can tell, tell a lot there. Yeah. I, I, th- th- that question of what is writing, I mean, there's, there's a difference between, um, I mean, that's a question of media what you're talking about in that sense you know is it a book is it well of course twitter you know it's writing of course you can do it but then you know oratory youtube videos these things can all be writing in that sense as well it doesn't have to be you know storytelling in that sense um and so yeah of course all these all these things are 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 great and i i didn't realize that you had so i i mean obviously i have you on on twitter so i see you on twitter but i didn't know you had a tumblr i would i'd like to check that out sometime um, yeah, and, and just you know, know for you and anyone else out there, I don't really post there much these days. Um, but if you go through it, you know, I tell a lot of stories on there. Of course, there's my famous nonfiction volcano story, um, which uh, if for anyone out there who, who, who doesn't know, I fell down a volcano once, and it <laughs> led to, and that's like not even the most absurd thing that happens in the it's story, so because it leads to a very long chain of events, and it's about a half hour read. It's pretty sizable, but right that. And that's very, very much my nonfiction vein of writing that I do. When I upload this, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll put the link for it. Um, so, writing the link. The, the, you, so you don't get to write as much as you, you would uh, because you have less and less time, right? Uh, and you don't really, it sounds like, you know, you don't have the, that sort of like a lot of your creative energy is being actually applied in in a way like you get to use a lot of the tools in a lot of different ways the way you were talking about the process of magic you get to play editor you get to play creator you get to play you know i guess honer i guess like you get to play all these different roles um and what you mentioned that the advice you got was when you write it should be something that's uniquely you and you work in a strong collaborative environment how does that pass for you? How, how do you pass those two things? Does, how do you get to be uniquely you in a group environment? I think it's honestly actually easier in a group environment in some fashion because let's say that there's five of us together and we're all collaborating on a story or we're all collaborating on a world for magic. We're all going to throw out ideas for this world and we're going to bounce off of each other. And even if what I said first doesn't end up in the final story, it inspired someone else to come up with something that did. And so I really still feel like there's a piece of, of you in that in that and and story. You know, I think another great part of that is I'll say something on the game design side that is maybe very mechanical that then inspires someone in creative to go tell part of their story. And it took both of us as a collaborative piece to put that in there that is something that neither of us would have come up with on our own. So to me, collaboration is not <clears throat> removing you from the situation. It's just allowing more voices to contribute. Um, And that's part of why I'm extremely passionate about creating diverse teams of people because, you know, by getting different viewpoints of life in there, you just end up with such a more vibrant story. And it's not like, it's not like, oh, there's, you know, a mix of people on the team now. That means that we're going to take a bunch of stories from person A and a bunch of stories from person B it means that they're going to riff on each other and create something that neither one would come up with individually. Yeah. 
yeah, you're very much putting the seeds in place for something to happen rather than trying to force something to happen. And it goes back to what you said about this this love you have for being immersed in another person's life. If you have a diverse team of collaborators, then you get to dip your toes in those different points of view. Very much so. It's exactly that. Yeah. That's fantastic. And there's no ego, by the way, in the way you talk about this. A, a lot of... Uh, I feel like... I wonder if... Because you, you did competitive magic. I mean, uh, for those who don't know, Gavin did... Uh, was a You invented the modern format. Correct me if I'm wrong. Not not exactly, but close enough. You know, that, that, that's a lot of people say that it's not like literally accurate, but it's it's on the right track. Okay, so for, for people who don't realize this, Gavin Gavin has an incredible pedigree of competitive magic, and one of the things about competition, correct me if I'm wrong here, is you really can't have an ego because it you lose. <laughs> you, you lose and you you don't make it to the top and you can't lie to yourself about how you deserve this and how you deserve that am i right you know i think everyone approaches it a little bit differently there are people out there who you know maybe do have more of an ego than others but for me personally like for gavin my like own ethos is the goal is to get to the correct end result i don't I don't care if it was my idea or someone else's that gets me there. And in competitive magic, my job was uh, my goal was to play the best deck. I didn't care about playing my deck. I just wanted to play the, the deck that I thought would give me the best shot of winning. And in, in storytelling or in magic designing now, like if I'm leading a team, this is a great example. I, I tell new people that come into Wizards this all the time. If I'm leading a team on magic, I don't care about getting my ideas through. In fact, as a team lead, I often feel like it is partially my responsibility to not push my ideas through but to take all the ideas from other people, see how they all interconnect, and then, you know, massage them into being the best thing for the set that I'm working on. Um, And I think if you have a personality that lends you to know my way is the right way and I know what I'm doing better than everybody else, and you're going to to not listen to all these other voices. And ultimately, you, you surround yourself with other people to be able to hear their voices, not just to hear them say that you are correct. And by, by taking all those aspects and of what they say and wrapping that in with your own life experiences, that's how you grow as a person and to my to what I like to do, come up with the best end result. And how did this, uh, uh, this way of thinking apply when you were doing your creative writing um, course uh, where I presume you would write something by yourself and then you would present it in front of a class, right? Like the, the, the magic poem you mentioned earlier. How does, when you're working by yourself in those situations, how did this thinking play out? The, I want to get to the end result and it doesn't matter if it's my idea. You know, any part of, if you're writing, I, something I value very highly that I hope most other writers do too, is peer feedback. I'm really all about it. I love showing people my, my work when it's, when it's ready to be shown and getting feedback and incorporating that in. And I think a lot of writers... I'm not going to say to their detriment because it's not always detrimental, but a decent amount of time it is, are like, I've crafted this story and I have this vision and I know how everything in this world works. Right? You build out the entire world in your head and you show it to somebody and they give you feedback and your immediate reaction a lot of the times is, no, 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 that's not right. That's not how this world works. I, I understand how this all works better than you. I, I, I will but, be less kind. It is to their detriment. I mean, this is something I have, <laughs> I have to deal with this. Uh, and one of the ways I, I deal with it is when someone asks me to work on their story, I don't read their story. I ask them to break it down into a one or two page synopsis. And then I ask for a couple of extra pages about what they are hoping for and what works, and what doesn't work, because I need to get that ego out the window. If, if, if they're going to start saying, well, this is like, it doesn't matter what you are hoping in that sense. I need to know what you've done and what you want. And then, as you were saying, like, it's not about my ideas, it's about your ideas, but I can't do that if every time, you know, you're going to hold on to everything as a precious darling. You've got to have to have, like, hacked at it yourself before I look at it because you won't listen to me otherwise. So I think it is to their detriment. And um, I, think, I think what you're saying is, is, is very important um, for people to hear. Um, it, my my suggestion was always like 
if you if you're trying to learn to write, do comedy, because it's, you can't lie to yourself. <laughs> People laugh when they know. You know. That, that that's a that's a great line. I really love that. Yeah, it's true. A comedy is raw, and um, you know, it, it takes. It also teaches you a lot about, about punchlines. I think it's no coincidence, by the way, that a lot of the most successful storytelling franchises in the past, you know, 10 years, you can argue if they're good stories, but regardless, the most successful, just, you know, worldwide, are ones that implement parts of comedy. Like, if you look, you know, I don't want to go into, you know, tropey genre stuff too much, but if you look at, you know, the Star Warses and the Marvels of the world, like some of the biggest franchises out there, they build out these worlds and tell stories and they do it all making you smile the whole time. And that is so power powerful. Like, you, you know, you look at Ted Lasso, which is a show that's won a bunch of awards. I think it's phenomenal. I really enjoy it. And they do this amazing, like, one-two punch of comedy plus, like, real moment. Comedy plus real moment. And um, it, if you can write comedy, that will give you the tools you needed to be able to write anything. Yeah, but, but also there's, I mean... It is, you know, to go back to what you're saying about how um, uh, that peer review and, uh, it, you know, when you're working by yourself as opposed to part of a team where it's somewhat safe and you try and you throw things out um, when you're on your own and you, you need that peer review, that sense of like this thinking that you have is very much how, what I, I try to explain to people. And I, I, I love that you said it, that you, you're focused on the end result. I want to get to a certain thing. So it, you you have to write with intention. Like I want you to cry at this. Quentin Tarantino talks about this. He says uh, he plays his audience like an orchestra. I want you crying. <laughs> I want you laughing. I want you silent. And I want you crying again. Like that. Right? And so that sense of like, I, I have these goals in mind. And I want to hit them. And then you give it to people and if you're not getting those things then you have to you have to rework and hopefully find it but a lot of people they have they don't want to nail that stuff down a lot of the time especially when they're new writers and they're nervous they don't want to nail that stuff down if they're very egocentric and so as a result they lie to themselves and say yeah i everything's working in the way i want it to even though no one seems to be immersed in my story or like it um i i i, to I totally get that you know i Part of the story might be, I, I don't know if this is how true this is. I was told this once. Maybe I, I need to go and, and actually look it up because I, I quote it a lot. But I always think about Lord of the Rings um, and how Tolkien wanted to start by right by he had, he had a world he had built in his head. Obviously, Lord of the Rings, you know, amazing, amazing um, novel. He had, he had a story he had built in his head, though, and he pitched it like writing a, about the, or sorry, sorry, excuse me, let me back up. He had a world in his head. He had a really cool world he had built out in his head. And he pitched about just writing about the world. That's, that's what he wanted to do was talk about the world of Middle Earth and its history. And he showed, it, he showed his ideas to a lot of people. And they're like, you got to have a plot. you got to have a narrative. You, you can't just, like, you, you, know, you can't just talk about this world or whatever. And so, you know, he went back. He, he diligently reworked a lot of it and turned it into Lord of the Rings, which, of course, is one of the greatest, the greatest stories ever written. Um... But then after Lord of the Rings, he's like, okay, awesome. I did that. Now I'm going to finally write what I want to write. And he wrote The Cimmerillion, which was not as great, we'll say. And The Cimmerillion is basically talking about the world, right? It's like a, a document of, of – it's a world guide in, in many ways. And I think that's a really great story of how even an amazing writer, someone who is, who is incredible and can write extremely well, needed help to – and peer review to get to create one of the greatest stories of all time. And when he went back afterward and was like, well, maybe I was right all along. Nope. It turns out, turns out you weren't. Um, yeah. And so, you know, if Tolkien needs peer review, you need peer review. <laughs> well, I, this is, this is the fear of becoming uneditable. That's the phrase. Uh, when someone gets, uh, where you're surrounded by yes men and no one ever tells you anything you're doing is right. bad. And right. it, when people do tell you something is bad, you don't listen to them. And so as a result, there's nothing to check you. But um, uh, like I, I feel like I mean I I don't want to I don't want to talk poorly about anybody because he he's incredibly talented. But I think a great example of walking down that path is um, Christopher Nolan, who has I mean some of his early films were phenomenal. He's made movies that I have absolutely loved. But as he has, he's had more and more success with very strange, very like genre bending, very like wow your mind's going to be blown fiction. 
he's gotten more and more obtuse with some of his stuff until eventually you get to Tenet last <laughs> year, which I I thought was just like so far removed from anything the audience could understand. And I totally see like if you were to sit him down in a bar, he would explain the whole thing to you in incredible detail and you'd be nodding along and like kind of understanding it. But when you try and tell that story in a in a linear or well, it's not even that linear. When you try and tell that that story in a on the screen, it's just like, dude, you needed someone to tell you no about a lot of this stuff. I think people are just afraid to tell them no. Um, and uh, that that to me is a great example of how you you start with you know the, the mementos and inceptions of the world, and then which which I think are, are solid films, and then eventually you go a little bit off the deep end because everyone's like, you're too big to fail. Um, and uh, so I think we all can always check ourselves, even if you are incredible and you have not you've only released hits so far, we should always check ourselves to make sure that we are we are creating what we need to create. I, I agree. Uh, Tenet, um, I, I, I love the idea of it, but I found it aggressively, confu- like it was actively trying to confuse me. Right? This would be a great comic book because in a comic book, you could use space and time in such a way that you could have the inversions playing backwards, that you read the comic backwards to get the inversion thing. To, like you could have a lot of fun with it, but it, and people can take their time, but in a film, I'm like, I can't. Pro- I redlined. Absolutely. I, I watched Tenet. I was like, I don't really know what happened there every time, but maybe I kind of got it. I went home. I read like a very, very, very long. Like I had to scroll down a lot. Reddit primer on the movie of like, hey, here's here's actually what happened in this movie. I read it. It was like a page and a half. I went back and reread it. Then I was like, okay. I had no idea what was going on when I was watching this movie. And now I kind of maybe understand it. And to me, if, if, if you got to write like a strategy guide for your movie, you've, you've gone too far, in my opinion. Which I think is very interesting because one of my favorite films of, of all time is a movie called Primer, which I don't know if you've seen this movie or not. No, But it is, it's, it's, um, it's an indie movie. It's um, with very limited release. It's also only like 70-ish minutes or so. And maybe it's like 80, but it's a very short film. And... It is a time travel film. My favorite genre is time travel. Yes. And it is attempting to be as realistic and scientifically grounded as a, of a time travel film as you can do. And there's a, I mean, I don't know how well they actually succeed at that, but there's a lot of things, like they clearly built out their method for time travel. They're like, this is how it's going to work in our universe. And we are going to make sure that every aspect is accounted for. And it's, it's a very technical movie and it has the high potential to be extremely confusing. But the way they present it, to me, is a lot more approachable. And even though it does some extremely complicated time travel things, um, they, they present it in a way that is very understandable. And I think it's because they took the time, from my understanding of the, of the interviews, to get it well-reviewed by other people who work on time travel movies of, like, here's what your audience will understand, here's what they won't. So if you're listening to this or if you're, if, if you're recording this with me, go watch Primer. I think, I think it's a very interesting film and a great example of this done correctly. I'm going to have to. Uh, I, so I, I love this. Um, just very quickly to go back to Christopher Nolan before we end up. Uh, you and I, obviously, we both we both like Christopher Nolan. We're not bashing him. But um, I wonder if part of the problem was this feeling uh, that you expressed that I very much agree with of this idea of having a goal-orientated sort of writing. Like, I want people to react a certain way to my story. And so to end with, that process of I want to get to the best result. Did you ever look at your writing in that way of like, there was a result-based element to it? Like you might explore an idea and a theme and a moment, as you were saying, you explore a moment. Um, But at some point in the exploration, does a result, like an end result pop in your head of what you want people to feel and experience? And did you then judge your work based on whether or not you got that kind of experience? Did you did you apply that kind of thinking to your writing? And if so, in what way? So one of my favorite things to say that I think is, is true and I, for everyone, and I think that as you're listening to this, ask you can ask yourself this question. I love saying that everyone's greatest weakness is their greatest strength taken too far. And I think we can all think about this and how there's things that we love and we're really good at and passionate about. But if you walk down that path a little bit too far, you end up in weakness territory. And to, and to apply that here, I love writing about these moments and creating the, these, these things I want to communicate that seem very tricky and, and interconnected otherwise. But, and that's where I often start my stories from. But if I walk down that path, if I'm so solely focused on trying to tell this, this one little bit, 
you might end up with an entire story that is Drek, except for this one moment. And you focus on this one thing so well that if all you do is serve this master of, I got to make this moment amazing, you might sacrifice the rest of your story as a result. And I, it's very important. Uh, one of my writing teachers told me, you got to let your story drag you through the mud. Yes. And I um, think that's so important of like, start with your idea, start with the vision that you have. But then once you start writing, it's unleashed. And maybe the original idea you had of a moment you want to communicate, maybe it evolves into something different. Maybe it gets cut entirely as you write more of the story. But you got you to gotta kind of follow where your story goes. And if you're constantly a slave to your original idea, then I, I think that you have the, run the risk of warping your story to be something worse because there's one thing you want to do very well. And um, for me, that's the thing I'm always challenged with, especially as you do like nonlinear nonfiction writing, for example, of, hey, there's a bit I want to tell here at the end. Can I make sure the rest of my story is actually captivating or am I just relaying a bunch of nonsense moments of my life? And, um, you know, I, I think that's, that's very important. Yeah, I like that. Uh, but uh, but there's definitely still even in that, you're talking about how there's definitely an end result, but the, it, it's not based on what the story is. Like the ideas of the story are very fluid, but there's a sense of like, I, I want people to be in, captivated in the example you just gave, or I guess intrigued or moved or something like that, right? And then you, you try and get peer review. Did they respond the way I wanted them to respond to what I was doing? Right, or did they respond in an entirely different way that is maybe actually better than what I had originally anticipated? You know, like maybe, maybe they get, they get to a different moment in the story and they're like, this moment really moved me. And you're like, that's weird. That's not the moment I meant to move you at all, but that's yes. great. And let's dig in there, you know? Actually, uh, before I, I started uh, doing my nonfiction stuff, the, the last story I was working on, I had a twist in it and everyone saw the twist coming. It was never a surprise. So I sat down and I, I haven't solved the question yet because I haven't been able to go back to it, back to it, but hopefully soon. But the question I asked myself was, one, do I actually, I wanted this to be a twist. So either I rework it and make the twist work, or maybe I don't have the twist. Maybe I just put it up in the front and I use it that way instead. Maybe I don't need it. Maybe I can have something else because of it. So I totally, I completely get that. Like, but yeah, um, I think, I think that's, I think that's great. Um, yeah. Do you find that you're still too goal-focused on some of your stuff? Do you find that's a weakness in you? I think I think it can be. I think, I think, I think it absolutely can be, right? But that's why I always try and self-monitor myself. And, and once again, that peer feedback is so important, right? Like it's important to show something just to people who will tell you it, your thing sucks. Uh, you know, advice I always got is get your first draft reviewed by your friends and get your second draft reviewed by people you've never met in your life because they will be honest with you about everything. And that's exactly what I, what I try and do, right? First draft, show it to people that I know will give me feedback and know how to write or whatever. Second draft, send it to someone who just doesn't even know who you are because they'll just be like, look, I don't get it. I have no affinity for this person, whatever. Or they might say it's awesome. And if you went over the minds of a random person you don't know, it's great. And, and people always ask me then, how do you find a random person? And I was just, just it, it's actually, I don't know, maybe I'm just weird. I actually find it really easy. I just message my friends. I'm like, hey, I want to run a story by someone that I don't know. Pick someone that you think would be a good pick for this, and then they send me a name, and I kick it over to them. So um, it's really easy for your friends to give you positive feedback or because they know you, see how your brain works and understand your writing. It's a lot harder for someone that you don't know to just, you know, to do that. So I find showing it to random people um, really helpful. Very true. Well, that's great. Thank you, Gavin. That's been a great talk. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, well, thank you so much. And you know, to anyone out there listening, if you have any further questions, you can always hit me up on Twitter at Gavin Verhey. And you know, I do talk about magic a lot, so you got to be in the market for that if you follow me. But I talk about some non-magic stuff too and tell a lot of stories. And so. Gavin has a – you have a podcast, which is also a YouTube channel, Good Morning Magic, where you talk about magic um, and the ins and outs of creating magic and so on. And it's a fascinating resource, by the way. Um, well, th thank you. And did anyone listen to this too? I think, um, you know, if you're like, well, I don't, I don't care about magic, but I, I want to support this really, really cool sounding person, of course. <laughs> um, I would uh, go watch my episode called um, 10 Years, 10 Lessons. I just celebrated my 10th year at Wizards of the Coast. And I wrote, I, I, I created an episode that talked about 10, 10 years of lessons learned. And, and a lot of them are things that I think apply to even 
non-magic to just like life. And that, that's very much in my vein of, of writing and creating. So you might enjoy that. Well, I will back you up. I will say congratulations on your 10 years, but also that one of the best resources for understanding writing for me, what is game design? Because game design, here's, for everyone out there who's listening, who's wondering how to make game design and writing work, there's a lot of interesting ways you can think about it, but here's one I think. The complexity of a board game or a card game or a video game and its rules is analogous to exposition in writing, in how you get information into your audience invisibly without it overloading them. All the same principles are are at stake. How you get someone to learn and play a game is very similar to how you get them to learn and sort of immerse themselves in the world. So there's a lot of great analogy there. Gavin's Gavin's, uh, is a great resource in that sense. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Thank you for listening. You can find me on Twitter at Basim Story, and other ways to find and support this podcast can be found in this episode's description. Jazakallah.